0: Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: I think that psychology, Western psychology, is so committed to a model that does not allow us to talk about Indigenous approaches to healing, which I would say doesn't allow us to talk about healing.
0: The Medicine Path podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now here's your host, Brian James.
1: Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast, I'm your host, Brian James. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Richard Katz, author of Indigenous Healing Psychology. Now, this conversation has been a few years in the making. Soon after I started the podcast, I found Richard's book, Indigenous Healing Psychology, which we talk about in this episode. And I knew immediately that he was someone that I wanted to speak to on the podcast because he was covering a topic that was becoming increasingly important to me and remains so. And that is the decolonization of Western psychotherapy. So, you know, many things have happened over the past few years, as we all know, we find ourselves now in May of 2022 and Richard's book came back to me and I started to reread it and the interest in talking to him was reignited. So I reached out to him and he was kind enough to say yes, once again, and, uh, we, recorded this conversation earlier this week, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Before we get into it, let me just start by reading some of his bio. Richard's had a very fascinating and adventurous kind of career, having traveled all over the world. So let me read a bit of that. Richard Katz received his PhD in clinical psychology from Harvard, where he taught for nearly 20 years. Over the past 50 years, Dr. Katz has spent time working with indigenous elders and healers in various parts of the world, including the primarily hunting-gathering Johansi of the Kalahari Desert, the indigenous Fijians of the South Pacific, the Sikangu Lakota of Rosebud Reservation, and the Cree and Salto First Nations people of Saskatchewan. At the request of the Indigenous Elders he has worked with, he seeks to bring their teachings into contact with mainstream psychology. The aim is to encourage the mainstream to be more respectful of diversity, more committed to social action, and more appreciative of the spiritual dimension in health and healing. Dr. Katz has written seven books on culture and healing. He is currently Professor Emeritus at First Nations University of Canada and Adjunct Professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Saskatchewan. And he currently lives in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. One of the things that I really enjoyed about Richard's book, Indigenous Healing Psychology, is that he begins with his own journey how he came to be interested in indigenous ways of healing and why he thinks it's so important that Western psychology adopt some of the principles from those indigenous ways of healing for all the reasons that uh, he talked about in his bio. So if you're interested in how therapy could change to address the needs of a wider range of people And as Richard says, how psychology could heal in order to become a healing psychology. Then you're going to get a lot from this conversation, I think. So without any further ado, please sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard Katz on the Medicine Path. All right, I'm here with Dr. Richard Katz. Now, Richard, do you prefer Richard or Dick? Dick, Dick is, yeah. The only
2: one that called me Richard was my mom. Okay. <laughs> You've heard that
1: before. <laughs> but it's part of your professional title, I guess. <laughs> I know, so, yeah. that's yeah. what we've read. Yeah. Um, I you know, first of all, thanks for joining me today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a few years now. Yeah, well, it's good to be here. It's good to see you. Yeah. Yeah, likewise. Now, maybe a good place to begin is if you could just let people know where in the world you are and just um give us a sense of place and time where you're calling from. Sure. This uh, I love to do that because we're here in Saskatchewan, Canada.
2: Um beautiful place, uh prairie, a lot of bush. Right outside my my uh living room window is a park with all sorts of beautiful trees. And right outside my window is a uh, an elm tree. We have a lot of elm trees here. And uh, one of the things I do is I sit in my rocking chair in the morning and I look out at that tree. Hasn't moved in the last 10 years, but it's a teacher because uh, that tree has been um, trimmed by the city. The limbs have been trimmed because, you know, they don't want a tree to fall on the electrical wires and things like that. And I looked at that tree, but two years ago, I realized that tree was not trimmed. It was amputated. Mm. The tree has, amp- it's amputated limbs because, um, every branch of that tree has a purpose of getting more light and more rain, you know? So it was going in a certain direction according to its, its nature and humans came along and trimmed it. So I look at that tree and, uh, I think about that, you know, the difference between the human perspective of trimming the tree and the tree's perspective of being amputated and then still going on. So we live Mm -hmm. in a town called uh, Saskatoon has a lot of parks like that. And out here on the prairie, um, I'm a city boy who grew up in the city, the East Coast in the States. So I really love being here. Very cold weather. <laughs> and you learn to, you know. The interesting thing is, hey, Brian, we think, oh, how are we going to adapt? But people have lived here for centuries without the protection that I have in this degree temperature. So it's yeah, a real yeah. teaching. Uh, you you can't complain even if it's forty below. All you can say it's cold, yeah. but you can't complain. How could I live here? <laughs> so it it uh, it's a very stimulated environment, and I've been teaching. Oh, I've been here almost 35 years, been teaching at the First Nations University of Canada, which is an indigenous controlled university and a little bit over at the University of Saskatchewan and writing and then the big thing I'm doing now is helping to raise my grandson who's come to us through a series of unfortunate circumstances. So I'm raising him now with my ex-wife. That's almost sort of, what's the key point in my life right now? That's what it is. Mm. how old is he he's now he's going to be turning eight. Oh wow and so uh it's it's a beautiful thing and and uh i'll never regret the fact that he's come to us never um even though it means a lot of things i don't do there's so much that he gives a mm. blessing he gives that it's just no no decision was was even made it was just of course yeah He's our boy. Yeah, that's where I am now, and 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 sort of not retired, but officially retired.
1: Yeah. I, well, there's a there's a bunch of things in there that I'd like to ask you about. I mean, one thing I was going to ask you if you were born in Canada, because it wasn't really clear for me from reading uh, Indigenous Healing Psychology if where you were born, uh, you got your schooling in the States at this little college called Harvard. Um, But I wasn't sure, You know, I was going to ask how a guy from Saskatoon made his way to Harvard, but you were born on the East Coast of the US. Yeah. Yeah, I was born in in Brooklyn, New York, on the sidewalks. And I spent my
2: early years, uh, because I was a great sports person, played sports all the time. (laughs) I had, I guess, two loves in my early life. One was sports and the other was school. Was that the time of the
1: Brooklyn Dodgers?
2: That's where I was, and I used so, to go there. I used to walk to Ebbets Field, where wow. I Jackie Robinson steal home.
1: <laughs> really?
2: So that was our that was the culture, and and every day after school, I'd go out onto the sidewalks on the streets and play what we used to call stick ball, wow. which is a broomstick and a Spalding ball, and the sewer covers were the bases. So I grew up in a very kind of you know not dense urban but urban environment and um, we used to say you know west of the Mississippi is unknown territory Mm -hmm. that was an east coast bias I moved further and further west but you know as so often is the case how did I end up here and it's a relationship you know we we move so often because of relationships Mm -hmm. so that's how I ended up here with a through my relationship with my ex-wife actually who's Mm -hmm. from here.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah, there's the connection. Yeah. yeah, there's the connection. But we came via Alaska, right?
2: Which was a very good transition to a whole different way of living. You know, a lot of people who grow up in an urban environment, it's very different when you move to Alaska, and then also here to Saskatchewan. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. There's got to be some kind of similarity, though. That I'm, I'm maybe imagining having only visited uh, New York and Brooklyn. Uh, But I suspect that there's some similarity in the kind of down-to-earth, direct quality of the people that these places uh, forge,
2: you think? I think it very much depends on the
1: neighborhood. Yeah,
2: right. Where I grew up, it was a pretty tight neighborhood. The same group of kids played every day. (laughs) And so there was that tightness in terms of people looking out for other kids. But I think it very much depends on the neighborhood. Uh, Certain urban areas, it's transitional. I I grew up in in an area that was not transitional, so it did have that quality. But I think it's very much, could very much be in the other direction. I I find Saskatchewan and Saskatoon very different from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And it's much more, I mean, you might experience that out on, on the island where you live. But it's in terms of the states, it would be what we would call the far west, you know, Montana, um, Idaho, those kind of places, you know, where it's really land-based. And the irony is that uh, it's land-based, but here in Saskatchewan, it's the land that was stolen from indigenous people. Mm -hmm. So the farmers who are the, the settlers, the colonists, They're attached to the land and we have a very strong farm-based ideology here in Saskatchewan, but it's land that was stolen. Yeah. So that's kind of the, 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 the under theme, but the major theme of my work is to look at the other side of the picture, not the the settler side, but the indigenous side. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's such a complex relationship, um, especially in farming too, like on my father's side, his grandparents were Mennonites who came over in that um, big move from Ukraine during the Russian Revolution, and they were suffering all kinds of persecution over there. And so they basically had to escape. And there was already settlements in the prairies, in uh, Saskatchewan particularly. And so they had people who could receive them there and help them get set up. And farmland was being basically given away in northern saskatchewan and so that's where uh my people or at least one side of my people come from and um so i have family ties there too and yeah it's i think you know if we're kind of awake and conscious uh it's something that we always grapple with you know our place on this land and uh you know what to do what to do with this inheritance of ours you know this kind of problematic complicated inheritance You know, this is very important to me, eh,
2: Brian, because what I'm doing right now is the book I'm working on right now uh, is trying to look at all the other things I've done, the writings I've done, and the culmination really was that indigenous healing psychology book. Um, But now looking at what are the, the implications, the direct personal implications of looking at indigenous teachings, in the context of colonization. So as a white person, what do I have to consider even more seriously than I ever have? The fact that the teachings that we receive, and I talked about those teachings in the book, you know, came from a context of of suffering, a context of deprivation, a context of pain that I'm seeing more and more clearly is part of the teaching. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying, Brian? It's part of it. So how do I as a as a white person relate to those teachings while respecting the fact that they are in one sense unavailable to me because of that seepage of colonization, right? And what is the core hmm? that is available to everybody? Mm-hmm. Because clearly the creator would not say I'm sorry, this group of people can't have teachings about spirituality. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But the particularities of the teachings of indigenous people, where in that do I have access that's honest and respectful? And where do I really have to say, this is not for me? So that's Mm -hmm. what I'm working on, Brian. It's kind of like, it's taken 50 years to, to come to that point because my other writing has been You know, certainly at the request of the people, but not examining as much as I really could have and should have. And I'm doing now my particular connection, Uh, because oftentimes and I know you've had the same experience. You're told I was told many times These are our teachings. We want you to bring them to your people. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like a simple request. And (laughs) oftentimes I would take it that way. But it's really much more layered. Yeah. Than I had, and again, I've been at this more than fifty years. So the request is made honestly: take these teachings to your people. But the layers of what that means are multiple, and it's not simple.
1: That's that's what I'm working on now. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I mean, I can relate uh, most. Um, When I think about yoga and the way that my teachers passed it on very much with that invitation to, to practice it first so that you understand it and then share only what you know. Uh, Uh That's right. Yeah. And I I think I was uh, particularly drawn to this lineage where the emphasis is on adapting the principles of the practice to the person's, personal background, cultural, uh, mental, emotional, physical, all of that. So it was getting down to that, that the core of the teachings, like what is actually essential here? What is the kind of distillation of the medicine? And then the way that that is imparted is, can be adapted. So we're not taking on a cultural form and just parroting it. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. it takes so much work to, to to discover what that essence is. It takes years of engagement with it, of inquiry, of wrestling with it. And then I think what you do find is that there is kind of a archetypal human uh, medicine there in it that you can then see kind of reflected in various different cultural forms. But uh, like you said, I mean, you've been really working on this for over 50 years and you're just now (laughs) finding out. Well, grappling with, I mean, it's
2: not that it's never occurred to me, obviously it's occurred to me frequently, but not taking center stage. You see the center stage was occupied with trying to understand the teachings and to write about it in a way that had multiple purposes. One of which was to give credibility and authenticity from a Western perspective to a series of indigenous teachings within that context. And when I was working in in Fiji, um, um, that um, the teaching there was like, um, at a certain point in time, it's important for someone from outside the culture to write about what we're doing. There's a place for that. And so that was really my um, intention in all the writing that I was doing. But now I realize with this new book, this Indigenous Healing Psychology book, that there's also a really important purpose. And I didn't realize when I wrote that book what it's done, but it seems to resonate with people who are training to be therapists, uh, psychologists, social workers, counselors, mostly white people and that seems to be where it really has found its niche mm-hmm. and uh, i'm teaching at um, the university to clinical psychology graduate students A course we call it learning from indigenous perspectives on health and healing that's uh, an eye opener for them and um, i teach it now each year now and one of the students just give me an idea so mostly white students i think i've had only maybe in the past 10 years, three or four indigenous students because you know, clinical psychology in Canada is still pretty much a province of white privilege, right? As one student said, after we talked a while, you know, I'm not sure what to do, I, I don't know. I'm not sure I know anything. And I said, great, that's, that's where we have to go because I said, there are people who you can turn to who can help you out. I said in every community there are elders to work with and also here in Canada and I think to a certain extent in the states as well every person who trains as a clinical psychologist by and large almost I would say probably 90 percent of them will have most of their clients be indigenous because with our public health system um Indigenous people are way overrepresented. Where the jails or the mental hospitals, and that's where most of our clinical psychologists will work. So here they are having to deal with a clientele they have no idea about.
1: Yeah. So well, it's interesting. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I mean that's one kind of segment uh, of the profession. The other. Part of it, and I don't know, like representationally, uh where the ratios are at, but like with a kind of private clinical practice, uh you're probably not going to see too many indigenous people actually this is a very good point, exactly, but right. Brian, it's a very kind of elitist um yeah
2: practice, a small part, isn't it they the 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 private practice, i mean like in terms of of clinical work in the states, it's the opposite way there's a Tremendous amount of private practice work, mm-hmm. but here I think it's quite the
1: the small minority, isn't it? The, uh, are, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, and then there's so many kind of like um, non licensed uh, therapy going on, so I'm not sure what the numbers would be. Yeah. But uh, but definitely, that's something I want to talk to you about. Is uh, well, first of all, you know, it might be helpful to some people to hear a little bit of your background, um, your training in psychology and uh, how you came to be exposed to some of these indigenous ways of healing. Yeah, well, my background was
2: <clears throat> after university, I decided I wanted to be in a profession. I always, I think it's a long term, to be of help, to help people, right? <laughs> It's kind of, a lot of psychologists have that dream. Um, and so I first thought, well, medicine, and I, and I did some pre-med, you know, after graduating from university. No. How about law school? I went to law school for a semester. And finally ended up in psychology and um, applied to the program at Harvard in clinical psychology. I think I had one psychology class. Uh, At that time, they thought it was enough. (laughs) And I just happened to come at a point where the professors were uh, Richard Alpert and Timothy Leary. So um, these were my professors in the clinical psychology program. So it was a very um, rare and I would say specialized kind of education that I got there. Uh, (laughs) So there there were other people who were there. Um, uh, Skinner was there and uh, Harry Murray was there. Gordon Allport was there. Eric Erickson was there. And Eric Erickson was one of of my mentors. Uh, And the interesting thing about him was he had no PhD in psychology. He was in the psychology department.
1: Yeah, I, didn't re- I didn't realize that until reading your book, actually. It was a yeah, matter of fact, he had, no, he had no PhD at all.
2: <laughs> but he taught a course that was really very popular. And he was there for about three or four years, I think. And then finally, they just said, couldn't take it. Not only was he teaching a very popular course, very popular but he wasn't a real psychologist because he didn't have his PhD. So it was a very unusual environment. And during that time, we all, a small group of us, I would say probably about three or four graduate students were involved also with the psilocybin and the LSD experiments or work. We used to sort of uh, not only doing research, but we did our own personal research, taking the substances and so forth. So it was a very eye-opening but for me more like a confirmation of that what is out there Mm
1: -hmm.
2: what is out there confirmation of that so from that to a very kind of chance meeting in my postdoc year of a person named Richard Lee who had worked in the Kalahari for a number of years he literally this was in the 60s I remember A lot of things were going on there. A lot of money was available for research. He literally said to me, are you interested in going to the Kalahari? Because they do healing there and they alter their consciousness, but with no drugs. Oh, I said, that's very interesting. That's kind of where I'd like to go. And that was the beginning of that. That was in 1968. Mm. So it was not like unusual to go what was unusual is when I got there to realize that here was a place that the the culture was proactively involved with changing consciousness. That was the that was the new the new vision. But going there, it made total. As a matter of fact, I remember feeling sure I'll go there. It couldn't be any more how would you say any more radical than what I've been through already. <laughs> psychedelic, you see. But it yeah. was seeing the same intensity of change in consciousness within a cultural context that was normative. Right. That was the eye-opener. Yeah. And then from that point on, hey, Brian, I just realized that if I wanted to pursue these kind of psychedelic visions without the, the drugs, because I was not interested in pursuing it on that venue, I'd have to kind of be more involved with indigenous communities throughout the world. And, and that's been the path. So mm-hmm. there and then Fiji and Alaska and, and Saskatchewan. And that led to the, to in each case, tell your people about our teachings. Who are my people? Well, at first I thought, you know, sir, white people, or uh, Canadians, but then I realized my people really are, are, healers, psychologists, social workers, um, like you, <laughs> mm-hmm. People like you, you know what I'm saying? So I realized mm-hmm. that, and it, it really enabled me to be more focused, and that led to the book, uh, which I see as like a culmination of those years of work where clearly the teachings have general application, but very specific and powerful applications for those of us who are committed professionally or personally to the healing work.
1: Yeah. Well, and committed not only to healing work, but to a particularly um, anti-colonial approach to healing work, right? Which is who I think are the people attracted to your book, yeah. uh, people looking to do some decolonization uh, within themselves, but then hopefully then through the practice of psychotherapy. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, I love the, how you start out the book with an overview of your journey, and all along the way, there's a critical examination of of Western psychology, and there are so many things in there that just really um, highlighted some of the, the issues with it and the kind of the hidden aspects of uh, colonialism that are kind of embedded in psychology. And I wonder if you could just give people a sense of what you came to understand about it. And then then that's where the work needs to be done, right? Which then you followed up on. But if you could just start with like, what were some of the things you started to notice were wrong with Western uh, psychotherapy and its assumptions? Yeah,
2: I think that's, you put it really in a good way, Brian, because um, it's, it's kind of like pervasive and oftentimes invisible. pervasive so just to take one example um we talk a lot about evidence-based interventions is it evidence-based meaning is there are there studies done to prove that their particular technique x or y is effective and um, they're often called outcome studies if you look at indigenous healing approaches which i think are a model of best practices, and I can talk about some of the things like respect, humility, exchange, um, service orientation that we could use to guide our practice as Western practitioners. But let's go back to the notion of outcome. Outcome depends on there being a measure at a certain point in time, pre and post, that the person entering the treatment benefited from the treatment. And we use that data to say, yes, this is an evidence based approach. We can use it. The problem with that is it's based on a model of psychology that assumes change can be measured at any particular point and it can be a measure of change or effectiveness. When, in terms of healing, from an indigenous point of view, it's an ongoing process which fluctuates. Hmm. Um, You could dip into the into the stream at a certain point and say, Oh, this is my outcome measure. But then I'd say to you, but wait a minute, if you had looked a month later or two months earlier, you would have seen something quite different. And it never ends. Right. From an so, how could you say it's effective when the person's still alive? Mm-hmm. Because they'll go through many more changes. So, so this notion of outcome, which is the rot bed of deciding which treatments are valid and which are not does not apply to the concept of healing from an indigenous point of view, which I think is, it's, I don't think it's appropriate to say an indigenous approach to healing. It's a definition of healing, right? It's not just an indigenous, it's a definition of healing. So that's one example where um, you're fighting against a a hierarchy, an institution that's really committed to certain principles, that violate the phenomenon they're supposed to be talking about, and right. it's hard. You see, like you know, you know, like in a graduate program of any kind, the people who run the show are the research people, and the people who run the research people are the quantitative people. I do a lot of advising for theses of qualitative in nature. And what I find is that all the t- students who are involved with qualitative research, they're trying to show that their research is like quantitative, can be measured in the same way. And then what I tell them is forget about reliability, forget about uh, measures like that. Those are quantitative me- Talk about the quality of the experience, the interaction. So I think that psychology, Western psychology, is so committed to a model that does not allow us to talk about indigenous approaches to healing, which I would say it doesn't allow us to talk about healing, that it's a real battle. And this book then, I don't know, it seems to touch a nerve of inquiry of, you know, what should I do? I'm trapped in this kind of box of having to measure, having to count, having to demonstrate with statistics, having to prove my point. And yet I know in my clinical work, it doesn't work that way
1: mm-hmm.
2: with some exceptions, eh, Brian? Like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy is consistently shown to work in different areas more than other. Well, part of the reason is that cognitive behavioral therapy is structured so that it can be researched. It's structured mm-hmm. so there can be an outcome. It's yeah. kind of like a what would you call it it's a closed circuit you know we are
1: effective but partly because you're set up to be measured to be effective exactly (laughs) well and part of one of the things that you do point out as well is that okay not only is it um based on measuring outcomes at one particular point in time of that person's you know what is a lifelong healing journey so that in itself is problematic but also how are we measuring success? What is that based on? What are the assumptions that are embedded in that? And I think one of the things you talk about is that it just, uh, it keeps perpetuating the status quo. And I I couldn't help but think about that Krishnamurti quote, that it's no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at, is that uh, the measure of a successful outcome is uh, colored by, the, the, the culture that <laughs> is setting that standard in a way, right? Which isn't necessarily healthy. Yeah. And I think that the
2: hidden curriculum or the hidden agenda of training of people to be therapists, counselors, social workers, is to maintain the status quo. The people who are setting up the training, the people who are doing the training are part of an establishment that really values its own jobs and job security. They don't want to train people who will break out of the mold, by and large, by and large. And um, when I'm teaching at First Nations University, one of the things I'm trying to do is to talk about the importance, and this is really, I think, a critical thing. They're almost all indigenous students. So the first thing we talk about is the importance of knowing the system. Hmm. You can't just say no longer, it's all got to be indigenous, you have to know what the system is and then with the language of the system pointing out its boundaries and its limitations and then you offer the alternative because Mm -hmm. I think that uh, early on it was just hey no we can't do it that way we must be indigenous but that doesn't work anymore we have to kind of know what it is we're fighting against Mm -hmm. and so this outcome point hey Brian is a good one because Think of all the research dollars and all the decisions made on outcome therapy, you know, outcomes of therapy. It's the gold standard. And it's irrelevant, really. Now, the challenge though is <laughs> if it's irrelevant, what's your alternative? Mm-hmm. You see? And from an indigenous point of view, the people working in the villages, the alternative is we know who you are. We've lived together. You have a village, and when I was in in Fiji, 150 people. We know everybody. We know whether it works or not. Translate that to a larger, more urban environment. How do we have the knowledge of, does it work? In most cultures, right, there are people whose role it is to talk about the healers. That's their job. You should go to so and so. He can do such and such. You should go to such and such. She can do such and such. That's their job. They're like spokespersons. In our culture, Western culture, we don't have that. So what do we have to do? We have to tell people ourselves. And how awkward is that? Yeah. Get well, you know, Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Otherwise, you have no work. But how awkward is that? Hey, eh, Brian.
1: Well, and it's such a competitive environment, too, Absolutely. that you're not getting much of that. Well, you know, for what you're going through, so-and-so, I think, would be so much better suited to helping you based on who they are. And, you know, I think you guys would have a good relationship. Like my uh, my yoga guru, he started the first yoga therapy clinic probably in the world in Chennai, India. And the way that he would pair up client and a practitioner would be based on, you know, he'd, he'd meet the client and he'd go, you know what, I think you and this teacher would get along really well. It was always first and foremost, there had to be the possibility of a caring, reciprocal, respectful relationship, you know, which would then be a foundation for the trust. And then the healing could come, you know? but it was the core of it was always the relationship. Yes, exactly. Not the credentials, not yeah. the specialties or anything like that. It was relationship first.
2: And and if you think of it, I, I sometimes this is the way I like to think of it and often do. Um the creator, or however you want to talk about the the way in which things emanate spiritually. I use the word creator sometimes because that's an oftentimes the people I've worked with. How could the, the creator or the force that's out there? Make distinctions between um, healers so that some people are denied and some people are given access. It's got to be that like that should be available for all people. And as you say, it's the match. So you there should never be a thing where well we can't go to that person because they they don't have the rep. Maybe it's a good match. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, there's a thing uh, in Judaism. You know like the notion of the chosen people. One of the things that uh, Danny and I have worked with is this notion of Judaism and Christianity. So Danny says, this is the Danny Muska, the elder I'm working with now and on this new book. And and he's featured of course in the Indigenous Healing Psychology book. Um, And he's very attracted to Judaism. He was raised as a Catholic and he says, you know what, they really know what they're doing. You know, they're the chosen people. I said, no, no, if you read the teachings in their initial language original language it's you are a chosen people and that was before I found that out because I said to myself it, it, the creator could not choose a people in every period of time there are people who are open to working the spiritual path it's got to be that way So it is a chosen people, which means that there always is a people or a person (laughs) who is chosen rather than the. And so I think that the notion of of pairing the therapist or the counselor or the healer, I like to say, use the word healer, eh, right? And I tell my clinical psychology students who are obviously very professionally committed and bound, I mean, to be a clinical psychologist, at least in Canada, is a pretty big deal. Less so in the States, incidentally. But here in Canada, it's a big deal. You guys are healers. And being healers, you're in a long, long, historically vital tradition of work. And so that label, I think, is very important. And if that's the case, then um, there should be just lots of possible pairings Mm. how you make them because i think your point is important in a situation which is usually institutional you're working in a clinic how do you make those pairings usually it's just by i have a free time at 10 (laughs) o'clock but 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 in in i'll take i'll take your insurance yeah yeah exactly indigenous communities that the pairing is critical
1: yeah
2: because everybody knows who that healer is and who they work best with. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. That term healer, I mean, my feeling about it at this point in time is that that's something that uh, could be bestowed on you by others, but to claim it uh, myself, doesn't feel right. This is, this is
2: really, you know, some of the teachings I've gotten is like they're key things and this is really why in in that book, I think it resonates with people who are trying to learn professionally, Uh, humility, the healing occurs not because of me, but because I have allowed myself to be a channel for the forces of spiritual energy that can enter into a therapeutic relationship, humility, Uh, vulnerability, I'm not in control of the situation. And of course, in psychology, particularly clinical psychology, that is a key teaching to be in control. Yeah. That's why people love CBT, because you come with the whole thing already laid out. Mm -hmm. We're in control.
1: Step two, step three, step four, you know. Yeah, Yeah, it gives people a real sense of power. Absolutely. Yeah. You you go learn the you learn the technique, you apply the technique. It's proven by Science and wow, and and you and you know the steps to take, yeah. Yeah. Because step four doesn't occur before step three, yeah. Laid out, but real healing, like you talk about a number of different experiences you had, it's a it's an organic, moving thing. Like the ceremonies are never quite the same, and there's always that uh, opportunity for creator or the mana, to come in and do that healing work. And yeah, I think the, the best ones are just in service to that, like the, the force of healing. Yeah. And I'm so glad you, you
2: used that word mana because in all over the world that I've been, there's always a word for that healing energy. In, in the Kalahari, num, wakan, among yeah. the Lakota, mana in Fiji. And the interesting thing, of course, it's also applied widely, like in Fiji, they talk about a good boxer, you know, price fighter having the mana. (laughs) So it can be, it can slide into kind of a, of a more of a, of a ordinary uh, power Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, that, that notion, but also the notion of service, you know, like, um, like I'll tell you, I, I think I talked about that in the book of The way Danny Musco works with his sweat lodge, um, there are people who do a sweat lodge who take pride in the fact that their sweat is really hot Mm -hmm. and really hot as if to say really spiritual,
1: really Mm -hmm. real. (laughs) More is better.
2: (laughs) And what Danny says is the purpose of the sweat lodge that he was taught was to help people to pray. Mm -hmm. and in some cases a person needs it to be very hot but most often it needs to be encouraging them to pray and so he says he never tries to make the sweat just as hot as possible he tries to make the sweat hot enough for the people who are in there to be supported in their prayers yeah that's service we'll say
1: yeah I, I love that like hot enough to focus and heighten your attention so that the prayer can be uh clear and um yeah like the mind clears out so the prayer can come forward right that's and right. that takes a certain amount of going through the ordeal that's um, right yeah
2: as opposed yeah as, to, yeah as opposed to brian i have a reputation for having a hot sweat yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Not service that's pumping up your own uh reputation and it's an ego gratification. I have the hottest sweat in the area, but it's not accomplishing the service yeah, right. to support people's prayer.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of a macho attitude too that you can find in some of these uh, healing types, maybe the plastic medicine men, like you call them in the book. Um, but there's uh, there's parallels all over the place. There's the guy with the strongest ayahuasca that'll Make you vomit the most or see the most intense visions. I met a guy once who talked about he had the strongest tobacco snuff and that would make you, like, knock you out for a few hours, make you throw up. (laughs) Um, But I met a healer once in the Amazon and he told us that my ayahuasca is not for vomiting, it's not even for visions, it's for learning and it was i found it to be much more gentle and then you know we had a ceremony on new year's eve and he said okay now tonight we'll we'll make the fireworks and then it was full of visuals and everything but it was like a special occasion the rest of the time it was about learning this is so so important and like i don't know how
2: you convince people who are new to this who seem to think that it has to have the fireworks to be real yeah and um Sometimes the fireworks are important, but they're for a purpose rather than showing how powerful I am as a, as a healer. It's because it's necessary maybe to knock down some barriers, eh? but not to pump up my, you know, um, the, the interesting about you so talk about the fireworks. I was giving a talk in Puerto Rico, a good friend there, a lecture on on this book, this healing psychology book and um quite a few people were there it was really well received and at the end uh you know as the end of a talk you always say oh, you know yeah <laughs> I, I made it through <laughs> yeah and um this um a long line i was signing books you know which was it's a i don't know that's a beautiful experience because what i do if i sign a book uh i'm always i try to engage the person who's asking to tell me a little about themselves you know what it is that they you, what was the connection that they made to the book so I can maybe write something that speaks to that connection? So a long line. And at the end of the line, this guy comes up to me and uh, introduces himself. He's, um, how did he introduce himself? As a, not as a healer, but as a shaman. Yeah. Long hair, you know, he was from South America somewhere with his accent, I could tell. We talked and so I have two copies, one for my daughter, he said, and one for myself, sure. And then he says to me, would you, you know how you are after a talk, you're sort of like, you're not all there because you're, you know, relieved, you're happy, you feel connected. He said, would you like to try some, uh, and I can't remember what he called it. And I, and of course, I, I don't even know what I said, but I must have presented a thing that said I'm not saying no. I don't think I said yes. And before I knew it, he had put, um, what do you call it? Like some kind of tobacco, not tobacco, but something in one nostril. Oh, yeah. So it'd it would
1: be like a uh, uh, hoppe uh, or rape.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's rappe. right. Yeah, exactly. And then the other nostril. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, I've taken, you know, a lot of substances, but I hadn't for 20 years. 30 years, but I knew, you know, you have it in your consciousness. Whoa. So here I was in this room in Puerto Rico, in the, in the building that was at the administration building. So it wasn't even like out of the way. It was in the heart of the properties. Right. And, uh, and I said to my friend, I just got to lie down a little bit. So right on the stage, I was flat out pretty strong. Mm-hmm. And, um, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm okay. Just, I need to lie down a little bit. (laughs) And it lasted a good 15, 20 minutes. And then as I, after I got up, clearly I was still in a state. The point though, was that he did it. This person did it as a way of saying, look, you've talked about all this stuff, you know, can you handle my stuff? It was that kind of a thing. I didn't Mm. catch it at the time because I was sort of still in this other world that, of you know, ease and everybody was connected, but that was his aim. So that notion of can I outdo you is nothing to do with the person. He was not concerned with me as a person. He was just concerned that he could show me he had stuff that maybe would make me say, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. As I say, it didn't have that because it was just another psychedelic session. you know. <laughs> But yeah. that was the attitude, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of people who will do that, and those are the people I've tried to stay away from in my work. You know, I've always worked with people who are a little bit more quiet. In yeah. uh, Rosebud, and I talk about this in the book. The person I worked with, Joe Eagle, Joe Eagle-Elk. Uh There are no pictures in the book, but if you had a picture of him. He would look to you and to me and to anyone else just like an ordinary guy no feathers nothing just wore a baseball cap that's the kind of guy i worked with who was very humble the only difference in all the years i've worked over 50 years was tom in the kalahari mm-hmm. and when i first met him he was just hey look at me guys uh, you know but a wonderful guy. But he was in that main because he was trying to establish himself in a culture that wouldn't support that because in the Kalahari Mm -hmm. among the Jintwasi, everybody is treated equally. And most of the men become healers, but he was trying, he had gotten into this kind of Western notion. I have to kind of distinguish myself. I went back there 20, 20 plus years later and he was just, the simplest uh, guy, you know, totally giving. But that one year in 1968, he was the only one I've ever worked with who had that kind of, hey, look at me. Yeah. <laughs> so I found myself, I gravitate towards that other type. But that's one of the teachings that I've always, that humility and uh, service. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Joe Eagle Up as an example, like um, he, never, uh, he never talked about his healings. Never. And um, he would talk often about his disappointments. And the most of his disappointments were people who didn't follow through Mm. with the teachings that he, Joe, got from the spirits. Mm. They didn't complete the Mm. task. So he would talk about his disappointments a lot, but not about how much he achieved.
1: Yeah, that's great. No, I love that story too. I've got a similar one I could share about the, you know, surprise yeah. tobacco snuff <laughs> experience. Right. to show off. Yeah, what?
2: Yeah, it's it, it's a uh, it's a manipulation.
1: Eh? Yeah, to
2: serve yeah. an equal purpose. And if I had not been experienced, who mm-hmm. knows what could have happened? You know, I could have oh, yeah. just gone. You know, off the the deep end. You know, I was in a, an environment that was certainly not conducive. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was in administration building, you know, at a university. That's where the the heart of the <laughs> the yeah. heart of the institution beats, you see. And I was fully, you know, dressed for a lecture, you know, and just let me lay down on the stage for a bit, you know. And my, I always remember my friend. Are you okay, Dick? Are, are you? Okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Just I just need to lie down for a minute. i gonna write it out, man. <laughs> well, to and to experience it, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, but but both of those, yeah.
1: So I was wondering if maybe you could outline some of the kind of core principles that you've come to, uh, that you've learned from these different indigenous healers. And what I like, I like the way you put it in the book, that your goal is to help heal psychology so that it can be a healing psychology. And what what you've identified in the book is that it's uh, Western psychology is based on a set of assumptions that are <laughs> really appropriate to uh, white middle-class men and things like that. So you talk about some of what it's lacking and how, if we could infuse Western psychology with some of these principles that are inherent to indigenous healing psychologies, uh, that then Western psychology could actually be a holistic healing psychology. I, I just love the way you frame that. And so, if you could offer some of those principles and maybe flesh them out a little bit, that'd be great.
2: I'd love to. And, and let me first say that <clears throat> how gratifying it is to hear your words because <clears throat> when you spend time working on a project, and this project was at least 10 years, it's always nice to hear that. And I'm not taking it personally, <laughs> I'm not saying, I feel good, but I feel that the work that I put into the book maybe makes a difference. So thank you for those comments. That's really important to hear.
1: Well, you know, from my perspective, as somebody who is just, uh, you know, kind of organically come into doing counseling work, I, I never set out to be a counselor of any kind. I, I wanted to uh, pass on some of the, the yoga that I had learned that had helped me. And uh, what I found was that when I was giving people one-to-one instruction, which is the way of uh, the tradition that I've grown up in, uh, they would come and we might do some yoga, but often they would bring some of the problems that they were struggling with in their life. And we'd sit there for an hour and we'd talk. And you know, thankfully, it had I already been kind of schooled that well, that is yoga, you don't have to be doing some fancy stretches and breathing exercises. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah so I was already kind of well primed for that but I I recognized that I had a lot of limitations in meeting the kind of the western mind and what I didn't want to do was just uh kind of only focus on the spiritual I've, I I recognized that I had to meet people where they were at you know with these kind of basic life struggles and not pull some kind of transcendence move or something like that and so then I started to get my schooling and I'm continuing to learn about psychology and different approaches to it. Uh, But one thing that's become really apparent to me as I've been doing the counseling work is that a lot of the therapy and counseling approaches that I've encountered are so clearly to me to be a product of a colonial mindset. And a big part of what I'm trying to do in the work that I'm doing in the world is to decolonize therapy Um, return it to its communal roots uh, to kind of democratize, particularly depth psychology, because to me, that's a psychology that doesn't leave out spirit and soul, one of the few. So that's what I've been working toward doing in my own way and trying to work with mentors who live all over the place. Um, But it's not often addressed so directly as the way that you've done in this book. So I find this book, and I'm reading it, and I'm cheering along with you as you go through your discovery and talk about your mission. And I'm just like, thank God there's an elder there who's who's already seen some of these limitations and is looking to heal psychology and learn from people who... We're doing um, just fine by themselves before psychotherapy was invented 150 oh, years horrible. ago. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes I get the feeling like, what did, what did people think we did before CBT? You know, well, I think our ancestors were doing just fine and they had a lot of things figured out. And maybe if we were humble enough, we could learn about yeah. some of those other ways. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm
2: thinking, uh, Brian, I, when I went to Fiji, <clears throat> which was in the late 70s, I had been involved with the Gurdjieff work for about 15 years, pretty deeply involved. That was the first and really the only time other than working with Leary and Alpert that I was involved with an approach that saw itself as having the answer. This is like, we've all been through that. And and I'm saying that as a negative comment because of course we didn't have the answer, but uh, we had a thing there called movements, which were sacred dances. And I was very involved with that myself. And I remember talking to my teacher, Mr. Island, I'm going to Fiji. How am I going to continue to work with the movements, which require, you know, the direct of one-to-one or one to a small class of people to do the various sacred movements. And he said to me, I'll always remember, he says, what, what are you worried about? He says, you will meet people there who have never heard about, spiritual work have never heard about Gurdjieff but know more about Gurdjieff's teaching than you or I will ever know so Mm -hmm. that notion that um, spirituality is and and you've said it just what you said there's no need let's meditate like I say look at that tree now it's raining out now it's beautiful rain Uh, and I pray to it each day silently I hope that your healing is working with that amputator. That's spirit. That's not a big deal, but it's the, it's the spirit. So mm-hmm. your point that you work where the person is—that's where the spirit is, and mm-hmm. that's what Mister Nile was telling me. Just live there, he said. You'll meet people who know about the work, and I've never heard about the concept of the work, Gurdjieff. That would they—they they don't even know what you're talking about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, but if he started to explain what what Gurdjieff's work was about, they probably go, oh, yeah, yeah, we we do that too, right? It's like when I met a a curandero in Peru, um, and we kind of, I lived in a little dwelling next to where the healers were put up during the retreat, and so I got to spend some just kind of regular time hanging out with them on the porch and lots of gossip and smoking of mapacho cigarettes and, you know. On the cell phones just like regular folks like you said (laughs) but um uh i was you know a yoga practitioner i was out doing my yoga on my porch every morning and all that and um he was talking to me about yoga and what i was saying is like from my tradition uh what it was about it was really about opening the heart like my guru's book was called the heart of yoga and that's really fundamentally what it was about it was opening the heart so that we could be in right relationship with each other and the world, and then there's harmony, there's shanti, there's peace, right and uh he was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, ayahuasca is yoga. it's meant right. to open us up so we can receive teachings from that's above cool. and you know all yeah. that and it was just and that inspired me to write a little book called yoga and plant medicine, because I saw so many parallels between what um, we were doing in yoga, you know, in what I call real yoga and what they were doing with the ayahuasca healing work too. So. Yeah. I mean, a particular
2: path can be very helpful, Mm -hmm. but it's not a requirement for some of us at certain points in our life, a path is essential. But for many people on the spiritual journey, they are not on a particular set of teachings. They're just living their life. Mm -hmm. Um, When I worked in the Kalahari, uh, the first time I went there, I was using a tape recorder. This is in all you mentioned about the book. What is it? I'm just going to summarize some of the things that I tried to talk about there. And I was taping the conversation with actually with Tomajon. And he says to me, basically, uh, what is that that you're using there, you know? Um, tape recorder. Well, and I was taping the, the healing songs from the day or so before and, and was replaying them. How do you capture those voices? How did you, cap, how did you catch us, you know? <laughs> that you can now... Well, I said, well, you know, uh, you know, and I tried to describe it, which of course I had no idea. What are sound waves? And I just talked about the. This is the piece of equipment pointing to the mic that catches the sounds, and they've got this. Uh, he says, "I know all that stuff," which, of course, I had no idea how he would know that. But he said, "But I want to know is how those voices and those people end up in that." Pointing to the tape recorder. Well, there's sound, you know. And I. And finally, I said to him, "You know, I really don't know how it works, but people back <laughs> home know." And he said to me before we are given anything of power we're told how it works and how to use it and i see that for psychology you know psychology is a thing of power before you go out and when i say psychology at burn i mean like all the work you know your work clinical psychology psycho you know that whole social work you know the whole area of health and healing before we go out We have to know what it is that we're working with because it's powerful. Mm -hmm. So the book is trying to kind of, uh, I would say, be sure we realize how powerful that is, what we're doing, and then to try to understand it. So in my training as a psychologist, the main thing was, could you measure, can you count? Can you establish the validity of things by telling me how many are there of that? And are there more of them than the other thing? So counting was critical and still is. And in order to count, you have to quantify in order to quantify, you have to chop things up into units. Can you imagine chopping up the healing journey into units so we can Mm -hmm. so that's kind of like what we're fighting against. Plus the fact that there's a, institution called psychology, mental health, uh, health services, that is convinced that it has the answer and protects its territory, protects its territory. So that's what we're up against. So um, the notion of um, working with elders, who I see as our first psychologists, not that they were the original, but they come from indigenous people and different, and all over the world, indigenous people, because every place of the world has been settled by first people.
1: Yeah. And I think what you're saying there is that this the quote unquote psychologist was always a function in every functioning society. Absolutely. Just, they weren't called psychologists. Healers. Every yeah, Every healer's medicine man, right. elder That's you right. know you go yep. and sit at their feet and tell them your problems, and they comfort exactly. you and maybe give you a good little bit of advice right exactly always a function of any any functioning society
2: and and the advice they usually give is not to do what I say, but to consider what I say, and if it sounds right and you try it and it works good. if it doesn't sound right, you don't have to try it the elders I've worked with never say, and do this, Mm. say, this is what you could try. Or, or they would say, do this, but at the end they'll say, you don't have to do it. It has to work for you. So elders, then uh, indigenous elders coming from a lineage are our first psychologists, but psychology has a hard time, you know, uh, acknowledging them as psychologists because we're, what's, Where's their training? (laughs) So the book kind of talks about uh, elders in different settings and the teachings that they they offer. And one of the things is um, there was a conference I went to. It was about 25 healers, traditional healers, and one white guy, that was me. We went around for almost two days talking about one thing I noticed was for two days, we went around the circle talking. Everybody was listening. Two days and uh, talking about their work and so forth and what they, the, the conference was put on by the U S government to try to see how can we measure whether, um, indigenous healing is effective. All said, you can come and measure. You can observe certain things you can't observe, but you can observe. But we have to tell you that the heart of Indigenous healing is the mystery that must remain. Can you imagine what Western psychology has to say to the fact that the heart of what we're doing can't be understood and certainly measured and being satisfied with that? Mm -hmm. it's like wait a minute we came to you said you were going to tell us and now you're telling us that you can't tell us about the heart except to know it experience
1: it but that's essential that's such a good thing to point out well part of my question is like how did the soul or the spirit get left out of psychology. I mean, it's in the name. It should be there. Right. But I think it, that's exactly what you're pointing to is the reason why is because it's the thing that can't be measured and quantified the, and the proven. mystery
2: must remain. Look, look at Jung. I know you're interested in his work. When I was a graduate student. Uh, what was, what was eventually the red book was just being talked about. Yeah. There's the murmurings, this, this book. Murmurings. And I can tell you that even people like Erickson or Harry Murray, some people who are more Gordon Allport, some people would know those names. Jung was danger because this guy was talking about stuff. Wait a minute. You know, so Jung, how did people get to be talking about Jung as a, Part of psychology and the Jungians. What did they talk about? Individuation, the types. They talked about all
1: those parts of Jung that were safe. Yeah. The ego, self, access, like the self, not spirit or the God within. All <laughs> the all the things that were safe,
2: and all that stuff that Jung did that we now see in the in the Red Book and stuff like that. That were the heart of what he was doing was never talked about. That was yeah, a, he said everything, they, el-
1: everything else he did in subsequent years came from that experience over two or three years. Of you
2: know. course, yeah. But but there was a, a um, I'm not sure it was explicit, but certainly an agreement among Jungians to make him kosher, to make him acceptable, to make him seem like a real psychologist. Yeah. So, so he was trying to, but, but within limits because he was a Western and he, and he owned that, right? right? yeah and he wanted
1: he wanted legitimacy too and so he always put himself forward as a scientist and downplayed the kind of gnostic or mystical elements you know he was trying to play the game um and get through what he felt needed to get through you know he was being strategic i think but you know i think we're past that yeah we can we can be more uh so explicit so so the mystery remains Mm. yeah another thing
2: is that uh what I've learned and talk about in the, in the book is that the purpose of life is to learn. Um, I mean, like, here we are, you know, we're spending time together. We're learning a little bit, actually, you know, hmm? hope so, but not, but not as if every moment, it's gotta be learning, but the overall intention of us being here on earth, these according to the teachings of it, is to learn. To learn what? To learn our place in the universe. According to Danny, to learn how we can return to the creator. There are different theories of, you know, what we do and what But to learn.
1: Mm-hmm. And yeah, so, and I, I think, like, I would distinguish just, and I think you might agree that we're not just learning by, um, by picking up more information mm-hmm. that we can repeat by rote, but learning in the deeper sense of gaining in wisdom. Sense. Absolutely, yeah
2: but but that's the purpose. Eh? And then um, the notion of the circle, mm-hmm. uh, you know, developmental psychology, which is again, a big part of psychology is still involved with a linear model or at best a cyclical one, cyclical, you know, where you kind of go into these uh, <clears throat> ever increasingly small circles until you reach some point of uh, and even Abe Maslow you know, was caught in a hierarchical, um, but what I've been told and what we're trying to do in the book is to talk about the circle, because the beautiful thing about the circle is that at every point in their circle is equal to every other point. There is no top or bottom. I mean, sometimes you'll see a circle graphically and at the top they might put something in the bottom, but the purpose of a circle is to rotate. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So all the developmental challenges that we, and, and Erickson was coming to that. There was a, uh, his wife, Joan Erickson, who did a lot of the work for him and with him, uh, did some work where she talked about the ninth stage. This is after Eric had passed away. And that ninth stage, adding on to Erickson's eight stages, one went back to all the prior stages eh? mm-hmm. to revisit So she was bringing in that circular Mm -hmm. so that childhood adolescence adulthood eldership we tend to think well the elders get more respect but but that's not the case every stage is a stage to be respected and worked with so that's an important teaching and again the developmental models that we have in western psychology Being linear helps to measure this is where you are on the path. Mm -hmm. But if it's a circle, you might be here, but as soon as you turn away, the circle rotates and you're somewhere else. So Mm -hmm. all places are of value, which is really important teaching.
1: Yeah. The other thing I get from that too, circle being the universal archetype of wholeness, you know, following Jung, um, anywhere you are in the circle, everything else is always present. So in my middle age passage, uh, there's the child is, is with me, the rebellious teenager, but also beyond that, there's an, there's an elder function that, or potential, at least that's in me as well. All of those things being present at every given point of the journey. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's
2: absolutely. And, and for example, there's a, a ceremony, you know, a, a healing circle or a talking circle, which is often used by people, but it's a ceremony. And in that ceremony, we go around and every person talks without comments from other people. So you're saying each person's point in the circle is of value. So, um, and then the whole notion that uh, health is more than not being sick. I mean, like, um, hmm. it has to be the Western approach is, can we stop sickness? Can we end sickness? Can we alleviate sickness? And by the way, maybe we'll do that by increasing health, but that's not a, it's not a dichotomy. The absence of sickness is not health and health. Isn't the absence of sickness. Hmm, Tell me more. Health is not the absence of sickness. I have never met a person. Have you ever met a person that's 100% 100% healthy for forever. Yeah, it doesn't have something going on at any given time. doesn't have time. something no. going on. And you know something, hey, eh, Brian, it's easy and it's un- And I don't engage in that, but every teacher that I've heard about has what Jung would call the dark side, you know, the shadow. Mm-hmm. The human beings. Even though, even if you say they're God-inspired or God-possessed, they have their dark side. And, and Jung was absolutely right. The first step in healing is to talk about and confront and understand our shadow. He's absolutely right. So um, it's not it's not the absence of disease to define health. Health goes along with unhealth. It goes along with balance. goes Balance is key. But what's the notion of balance? It has to have in it the notion of imbalance, because otherwise there's no balance doesn't exist if it doesn't also imply actively imbalance like the the teeter-totter you know like can you imagine how dull it is to be like 15 pounds heavier than the person on the other end of the teeter you spend the whole day sitting on the ground yeah it's not a seesaw <laughs> you see so balance inherently has to have imbalance and again that's the notion of outcome we talked about before healing and health inherently has to contain ill health and, and that constant balance at different levels in different permutations but it's always that dynamic so mm-hmm. it's got to be that dynamic
1: so let me see if i'm following so would you define health like i love that not as the absence of sickness no but it's something more like a balancing of the whole of the totality.
2: balancing of the whole yeah yeah in, in different at different points hey eh, brian at different levels in different situations Right. understanding feet,
1: that oh. there's flux there's up and down and the up and down helps us notice the imbalance so then we can make an effort in the opposite Absolutely. direction yeah You yeah. like the straight path i think i mentioned
2: earlier like uh as one travels the straight path and according to fiji teachings as a healer The more, the further along the straight path one gets, the more experienced, the more dangerous it becomes because it's more challenges to think, oh, I've really got it now. And as one goes along in the path, the more people come to you and acknowledge or try to tell you, wow, you're really, and so one gets filled with kind of self importance. That's the danger zone. Mm -hmm. The more people say you've got it, that's the trap of. Realizing, and that's when you fall, where am I? what am I you know
1: yeah, and you talk about the straight path in the book, and I think not so much as a kind of uh renunciate or um ascetic path, but straight path meaning a moral and ethical path. that's right yeah,
2: yeah, exactly yeah, it's not ascetic at all because in Fiji, uh people full full engagement in life there are no <laughs> there are no people off in the bush meditating. It's a full, yeah. And then the, the notion of um all my relations, you know, which is that in community psychology, for example, that was a big deal, community psychology. I remember in the in the 60s in the in the late 50s when a group of psychologists who were clinical psychologists felt that what was happening was happening in the streets, not in their office, you know, in the 60s. And they started community psychology, which was trying to, you know, in terms of social justice, we're all connected. And then when community psychology became recognized in APA and CPA as a form of psychology, as a part, it became regularized, institutionalized. And the ties to community and the activity and the the vocal, you know, social justice impetus was gone. It was just another discipline. But the basic notion of it was we are all connected. And so one of the prayers that uh, people in, of a Lakota thing, at the end of your work, you say Midakwiyasan, which means all my relatives, which means I'm ending my prayer with an acknowledgement that everything around me, everything around me is related. Um, including, you know, that tree that sits there including the ants, including Brian, including my little guy that I'm helping, we're all related, all my relations. And so that challenges psychology brutally because psychology survives on distinctions, Mm -hmm. not on connections, but distinctions because you can't measure something if the essence of what you're measuring is the connections it has with other things, which are then connected with other You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The essence of me- you have to isolate. Right. So mainstream psychology isolates. That's the purpose of the laboratory.
1: Yeah, to otherwise it it's, it's too it's You too- can't contain
2: it. Yeah. That's exactly right. See, so so you can see mm-hmm. where the whole notion of the indigenous approaches talks for a different concept of measurement. And what's the concept of measurement? One story. Mm-hmm. One story, because the teachings I've received, there's no more basic sacred data than one story. Not the survey, not the number of instances to count, but one's story. And one could say, but yeah, but you could lie. I'm sorry, that's your story. Whether it's a lie or not is only for you to know. So when you hear a story from an indigenous context, you don't say, wait a minute, you didn't do that. Because mm-hmm. at that point in time, that's their story.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, they're, they're, even if it's a, a factual lie, there's going to be a hidden truth in it. And that might be something, you know, about their aspirations or their desires. That's right. That's and, right. I mean, but, what's yeah. more true than that? That's a good
2: point. Exactly.
1: So the concept of lie
2: is based on a notion of truthfulness that's very superficial. As you say, it could be an aspiration or it could be an attempt to hide, which we're allowed to do because that's who we are at that point. Mm -hmm. And we don't need a psychologist or a counselor to say, wait a minute. That's a lie. Mm -hmm. You want to say, tell me more about what you just said. I want to hear more about that. As opposed to, oh, I caught this kind of lie. I'm going to, you know, it's Mm -hmm. my truth or it's my falsehood, which is my truth at that moment. (laughs) You see, and our job as therapists is to listen to whatever the story is and to go with the story, to lead with the story, to travel with the story. It'll end up with the person realizing this is a fabrication that I'm doing in order to save this part of my dignity, this part of my my feeling of comfort.
0: Mm -hmm. I can't
2: face it yet. Yeah. And you'd say you say it's no problem. We have time. Next week we'll talk more. As opposed, to, I caught you.
1: <laughs>
2: you say let's let's deal with the lie right now.
1: Yeah. There's another. Um, what it's bringing up for me. Uh, you know how we kind of measure health. Would you say that? I mean, is it is it uh, a principle? or viewpoint in indigenous healing that one of the markers of individual health is the health of the community? Like, can they ever be separated?
2: That's a a hard one. I mean, in my experience living in different parts of the world, in small communities, I would say, yes, that's the case. That it's very hard to separate them because uh, if you 're living in a village like I did of one hundred and fifty people with not a lot of visitors it 's a unit and the Kalahari the same way um, on reserves like at Rosebud, not quite that because there 's a lot of back and forth and you know. I think it'd be harder to say what that means in an environment like i i mean saskatoon we have almost yeah. like two hundred thousand. It's hard to say, it's hard to say, but I know there must be a connection, but you can see that connection vitally and actually in small communities. So I'm sure it's there, Brian, but it's harder to put a finger on it because here in Saskatoon, only 200,000, there are sections, there are pockets, there are communities that are smaller than obviously 200,000 that have degrees of, healing and health, you know, and it could be just a dozen people.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe what I'm reaching for here is uh, something I don't hear enough about. And it's like in the language, right? So you talked about Maslow, self-actualization, you mentioned Jung, individuation. Um, It's the, the isolated individual, not accounting for how uh, individual and community or environment, you know, natural environment or otherwise, are interrelated and inseparable. Uh, and so, what are the, you know, is it possible for me to be completely healthy living in a really sick society or polluted environment? Um, I mean, so many of the problems that people come to me with, I think, are just symptoms of living in modernity or in an urban environment and having a disconnection from natural ways of living
2: you know it's a maslow was um, he saw it because i worked with him and he was one of my friends as well as a mentor but he saw himself as maslow against the world so he was very concerned with how does an individual fight the battle? He was always fighting the battle. So his emphasis on individual characteristics would be explained in part by his own journey. I mean, the whole... He became president of the APA, but he still saw himself as an outsider Mm. and people being against him.
1: eh? That was Um, his complex.
2: Yeah, exactly. So he was fighting, you know, the battle. He was fighting the battle. Um, And I think that... um, So much of Western culture feeds that, eh? you know, Mm -hmm. say individual. But, you know, I remember very clearly in Fiji, like with the adolescents, uh, they would walk around sometimes in groups and sometimes one person would sit down and four or five would just sit down right away with them. Almost like a a flock of birds, you know, how a a flock would just... Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, gee, they don't have any sense of their own destiny, what a, you know, group think. But that was missing the point totally. It's not like they were giving up themselves to group think, it's just that they felt connected. I mean, the birds that, we see flocks of birds, you know, they do these incredible swooping around in the sky and you think that they're, because they're following a leader in a kind of a blind, it's part of the connection. It's what makes the flock gives them and gives them protection, right from predators. So yeah, we're affected, but how large the unit has to be, I don't know. And hey, Brian, what choice do we have? Eh? I mean, you live in a beautiful spot, but it's part of the world, you know that's the other thing I realized. People used to say, "Oh, you lived in Fiji. What a beautiful thing. You're so lucky. Guess what? is people all parts of the world there there's nothing that's beautiful to the point of making you beautiful you can live in a beautiful environment and be just
1: kind of awful you know yeah well we f- see we see that a lot how a place will uh, kind of get on the international radar and become yeah. a tourist destination that's next thing you know Tulum ain't so beautiful anymore, you know, and go down the list of places that have been kind of ruined by colonial. Well, I used to live a long time ago. I used to live on a little lake when I was living in the
2: States. Beautiful place, you know, just off in the, in the bush. And I used to have someone who came to me to visit. Oh, you're so lucky you live there. I said, why? Well, look at the beautiful lake and you're right. I said, yeah, but you know, (laughs) I know I, I enjoy it and I'm out on the lake but it's same life, you know, it's not, it's not solving any of my problems just by being there. So yeah, our environment obviously is part of the deal, but so much of it is out of our control. So we have to just live where we
1: are and to Mm -hmm. take that journey. Yeah. And try to maintain balance uh, no matter what's going on externally.
2: Yeah. Someone will say, what's your day? I said, do you really want to know? Yeah. It's been up and down Mm -hmm. and it will always be up and down.
1: Yeah. How's your day going? Well, it's been going a little like this, a little like that, a little up, a little down, a little sideways. Yeah. And a little (laughs) sideways. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, there are a number of principles that I think are really important. I mean, anyone interested in, um, in what we're talking about, should read the book, it's like, a, I think it's a textbook for a future course called Decolonizing Psychotherapy in Helping Professions <laughs> that, you know, maybe like we could talk too. about later. <laughs> I like that very much, Brian. I like uh, that. Yeah. But there's one principle that I think we've been talking around a little bit, but I wanted to name because it really jumped out at me. And that's um, something that uh, sounds like it's inherent to all real healing, at least in your perception that. The principle of synergy. Oh, yeah, good. Yeah. Could we yeah. maybe just talk on that before we end? Well, I'm glad you mentioned
2: that because I have a book here. I don't know if I should send, try to get you a copy of it. This one here on huh. synergy, synergy, healing, and empowerment. Um, that's to me, hey, Brian, that's kind of like one of the things that gives me comfort is that, and I believe this, that. that that in the universe there are principles at work that can maximize connections, can have it so that what's good for one is good for all. And I first saw that in actual work in the Kalahari where like, if let's say I'm a healer and you're at the healing dance and everybody comes to the healing dance, the whole community. And I do healing work with you, which is, you know, the num comes up and boiling energy and I work on you the fact of my working on you makes it likely that you're going to work on someone else or the connection I make with you will activate the connection in another healer. So the notion of synergy, meaning what's good for one is good for all means there's not a limit to the healing energy, but that it's expanding. Mm. And if you can set up the conditions and Buckminster Fuller said, you know, it's out there. So all we have to do is allow it to happen but the Western model of you go into an office, you close the door. As soon as you close the door, Hey, Brian, no one else can see you. Mm -hmm. It's a limited resource. If we talk about a circle, then it circulates. Mm -hmm. And the work I do with one person makes it more likely another person will be worked on. So the principle of synergy, what's good for one is good for all. And, um, there's an energy that is released, which expands and is renewable. Mm. I think that's something that uh, if we were allowed to set up structures to let synergy work would be a beautiful thing. Mm. And of course, all the institutions that we now use in the Western culture to give us employment are against synergy because synergy means you can't own things. And if you can't own them, you can't make money from them.
1: Yeah, again, it comes to that like need to contain in order to like understand or commodify or (laughs) I mean, uh, some people control. Yeah, some people
2: are just totally thrown and upset if they can't control. Yeah. And and control can be sort of made pretty by saying, I have to understand it. Mm -hmm. Well, sometimes you can't understand. I can't understand it.
1: But that's yeah. what it is. Yeah. And by saying like, I I can't understand, I don't know it. Well, you relinquish your authority, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I love this idea of synergy too. And I was getting the image of something rippling out from yeah. one or two people. And like, not even that, you know, if I work on you, you might work on someone else. But if I do some healing work with you then you might go home and not kick the dog or yell at your kid, or <laughs> right?
2: That's right. Like yeah. in those
1: little small ways, then the healing ripples out from the individual. I mean, you know,
2: the, the image, which is kind of, we all see, but it's powerful. When you do throw a stone into a, into a body of water and you watch that, it's a powerful image because not only does it cause ripples, but you never see the end. Somehow it's okay. That's it, but it's not, it keeps going maybe underwater. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, this has been, uh, you know, I got to look at the time cause I'm sure we could talk all afternoon. I mean, this is beautiful. It, there's, there's yeah. so much to the book. And one of the things I'll, um I'll leave people with is that it's not a clinical kind of book. It's, it's written in, a much different way than most psychology books that I've read. Uh, you write with such a careful respect and humility for the traditions that you're talking about uh, in dialogue with as a Western trained psychologist. That really, really comes through, is that humility, respect, uh, and reverence for um, and and I think the pure intention of what you're trying to do, I just uh, I really appreciate that and admire how you were able to convey that in in a book. Yeah, it's great. Well, I pr-
2: really appreciate that. And I'm as you're saying that, hey eh, Brian, I'm trying my best with some success to take it as a comments about the book as opposed to comments about me because it's now in the book. You know what I'm saying? Like, I, I yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but I do appreciate that's a beautiful thing mm-hmm. that you've just said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So um, I hope we can have another conversation sometime. It's an hour and a half isn't long enough <laughs> to no, well, cover it all. Reach out, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm yeah. going to pick
2: up my little guy. Cool. Yeah. Um, now, I don't think you have a website, right? No. It'll have to be. Uh, I, can you put up just
1: my email, you know? Sure, I'll do that. I'll yeah, put up that. your email. So you don't mind people contacting you directly? Absolutely,
2: This would be great. Okay. Be great.
1: And are you doing any online teaching these days? Only,
2: I do only face-to-face, yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: yeah.
2: But also you can, if there's a little bit of, uh, you know, different interviews that have been done, you know, on internet and on the web, they're there, you know. But my email—that would be the simplest way.
1: All right, and the books. I mean, you yeah. put so much work into the books, so there's a lot there for people if they want to dig a little deeper and learn from you. That way, it's there. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, this book that we're talking about, I feel good in terms of
1: putting in as much as I could. And oh, it's in there. And look, I have you sent me uh, a few years ago. You sent me the hard copy, or had your publisher send it, but. Um, When I wanted to reread it this go around, I bought the Kindle version, which is great for your book because you have so many footnotes that are not just informational, but anecdotal. Like in some of those footnotes, you'll get a great little story about uh, about Richard Alpert or something. So, um, you know, every page there's a, a few footnotes and so I'm like I click and it's a little surprise what opens up because oh, it doesn't take great. you to an, yeah. another part of the book. It just opens up a little window yeah. and then there's this like really great like kind of insider anecdote about whatever you're talking about. It's, that's so great. I recommend oh. that. They've done that really well. Yeah.
2: Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I really yeah. appreciate it. And I hope that people can find the book of some help, you know.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I hope so too Alright, well until next time, take care Take good care I See you soon
0: The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish Territory Vancouver Island, Canada For more information visit brianjames.ca Music by Olive Artizoni, aka Greenhouse Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sunshine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the medicine path.